On today's episode, Anna shares how the cold case of Angela Samoda's murder was solved 22 years later. Welcome to Crime Bar. Howdy, partner. Howdy, partner. We got an exciting guest today. What? Khaleesi girl. Oh. Yeah, we have Ashley. I was like, wait, no, that we're not doing guests today. <laughs> Just my imaginary friends. Uh, no, I'm excited because I have my two best friends in the same room. Me and Ashley's my dog. dog. <laughs> Anyways, on to something very heavy. Hmm? Okay. Shall we just jump right in or is there anything you want to say about me or to me? Wait, what? I'm just kidding. This, I'm going like, to give you the mic for compliments. Oh, I think you're beautiful and you're wonderful and you work so hard and you worked so hard on this story. Oh my gosh, thank you. It's so unexpected. You were like... <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see this coming. I didn't see any of this coming. You did work really hard on this story. Thanks. I, I could tell. I cared. Yeah. All right, well, here we go. <clears throat> what is this story? It is the murder of Angela Simota. Okay, I don't know. I'm about to tell you. So proceed. So proceed. <laughs> so I may continue. Angela Samoda was born on September 19th, 1964 in Alameda, California. So she is a Bay Area girl like us and a Virgo, Virgo. like you. She was a student at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, also known as SMU. Mm-hmm. And she was the social chair of her sorority. She was a Zeta. October 12th. 1984 started out as a completely ordinary day for 20 year old Angela. She had just gotten lunch with one of her girlfriends, Anna Kadala, mm. and one, I don't know if it's an Anna or an Anna, but I'm going to go with Anna because it's ANA. Yeah, and, that's Anna. Yeah, it's Anna. <laughs> Coming from an Anna that is literally spelled A N N A. I said well, that with yeah. so much confidence. <laughs> yeah, but it, that's, that is the traditional. It's the way it be. Yeah. So she and her friend Anna. They had lunch with one of their professors, and then they headed back to Angela's place. They decided it would probably be a good idea to take a power nap so that they would be ready for a fun night ahead. When they woke up, they decided to get dressed up and start pre-gaming for a long night. Angela decided on a black silk jumpsuit and black heels. Very trendy. Very cute. Very cute. Both of the girls were students at SMU, and it's like a pretty typical college town where everything is located pretty close together. Okay. And your friends live down the street, bars are walking distance, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. One of their guy friends, Russell Buchanan, stopped by the apartment really quick to say hi to the girls. And then they decide that they should all go back to his place so that he can change clothes and get ready to go out with them. Angela was going to be the designated driver for the night. So she was planning on having a couple drinks, but nothing crazy, nothing irresponsible. She was planning on waking up really early the next morning so that she could go to a football game. And, like, football's massive in Texas, if you don't know the friend. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. 
and the game was in Waco. She wasn't going to miss it. And Waco is approximately an hour and a half away from where she lived. So she was going to be up at the crack of dawn. So she was going to have a couple drinks, get home at a reasonably early hour. Uh, so she didn't feel miserable waking up very early the next day. Totally. So she's being intentional. She's yes, responsible. Exactly. She's a very mature 20 year old. Yeah. The three friends head to a restaurant called Bennigan's before they hit the first club of the night. They hang out at Studebaker's for a while before going to another nightclub called Rio Room. Angela was drinking, but nothing excessive. They decided to wrap up the evening sometime between 12 and 12.30 a.m., which is like relatively early for a Friday night out in college. I mean, not for me. I was asleep by 10, but like for like normal fun humans. <laughs> right. That's reasonable. Yeah. So by the time they were getting in the car uh, to head home, Angela was not intoxicated whatsoever and her friends felt completely comfortable with her driving. Angela dropped off Russell first back at his place and that was just like a few minutes from her condo. And Anna had been planning on spending the night at Angela's but decided against it when she heard how early Angela was planning on waking up the next morning. She's like, we're oh, yeah. headed to the same game, but I am not getting up that early. Okay. I don't know if she was planning on tailgating or something, but... On the way to her dorm, Anna realized that she left her curling iron back at Angela's apartment. Can't go without that. So they decide to swing by and get it before she got dropped off. And that is the last time that Anna ever saw Angela. Oh. And that is Anna Kadala's testimony. Okay. Russell Buchanan met Angela Simota early October of 1984. So like so just like Weeks. a week. Yeah, like a week and a half, yeah. basically. Very, very new friendship. They had mutual friends that had introduced them. And I believe that Angela was like friends with his roommate's girlfriend, like one of those just yeah. extended, you know, cousins, yeah. friends, or someone sisters, whatever. Someone. Exactly. Yeah. And it sounded like they met while they were out at a bar one night. So not like a deep friendship, very new. Um, she didn't know him well, but she decided to call him up the night of October 12th. And she asked if he wanted to come over for drinks back at her place. Oh, okay. So she was like maybe a little into him or? Except for she has a boyfriend. So it's kind of like up for debate at this point. She has a boyfriend who she'd been seeing at this point for months. They were like exclusive. Okay. Um, I think he, I think Russell wanted to go out to lunch with Angela at one point And she was like, no, I have a boyfriend, but you can come over for drinks with my friend and I. I don't know. So he shows up, takes one look at the girls and he was like, uh you guys look amazing i am underdressed i need to do i need to change if i'm going to be seen with you guys oh okay so the three of them go back to his place so that he can change according to him they go to boardwalk beach club before heading to the rio room russell and anna both recalled that angela had called her boyfriend before going to the rio room because she wanted him to meet them out and also like he had a hookup with the Rio room, like Rio room had this like exclusive members only back room and Angela wanted to bring her friends and she thought that she could only get in if he was there with her. Okay. So you are like telling this story from a couple different people's perspectives. Yes. yes because that's key. So okay. we have two so we people just that are with Anna's perspective. And now, now we're, we're talking doing... about Russell okay. and the things that they can both agree on okay. and then the differing details. Okay. So according to an employee at the Rio room, her boyfriend never made that call to get she and her friends in, but they got in anyway. So Angela was like the type of girl that literally knew everyone and she didn't need to be a member or have a referral to get into some club. She was just that girl. Russell recalls that the Rio room was so packed that they couldn't even get drinks. 
So they remained pretty sober throughout the evening, strictly because they couldn't even get up to the bar. He said that Angela didn't care. She knew everyone. She was a social butterfly. She was going from table to table saying hi to everybody. She was just that girl. She was social chair for her sorority. Mm -hmm. Everyone knew her. He was more than happy to wrap up the festivities because he was actually heading to a wedding in Dallas the next morning before he went home eventually to Houston. So he had an early morning. They all did. And he believes that they left the clubs around 1 or 1.30 before heading home. So multiple details of their stories do not match up. And you could argue that a few of those details are like benign or easily mistakable. Like yeah. what restaurants and clubs they went to and what order they went into. And or was it 12 or 12.30 or, or was it 1.30? Yes. And it's up for debate. But with that being said, when you have a case like this, the hours in which someone is coming home are, key. are crucial. Yeah. And it sucks too, because when you think about, especially when you're young and drinking way more and you go out and like, I don't know that I would, if somebody asked me the next day, what time did you get home? I don't know that I would have actually paid attention or noticed or what yeah. time did we leave the bar? Like those, those details get so muddied. Especially when, when there's drinking. alcohol. Yeah. When yeah. there's alcohol involved. And also when you're that age, you're not like pulling out your, I mean, I mean, whatever, even do you even have a cell phone at this point type thing? Like that's not no, like the, readily available. No, nothing like that. No, so you literally have to have a watch on your wrist or yeah. there has to be a clock somewhere in the car or something that. like, and you're just not paying attention, that kind of thing. The only reason I know what time I'm going to bed every night is because I'm saying good night to my mom. So that can be like a good <laughs> gauge of things. I yeah. can pull up that text. Yeah. So Angela had, like I mentioned, um, she had a boyfriend named Benjamin McCall. She invited Ben to go out with she and her friends that night, but he said he couldn't go because he had a construction job early the next morning. He was a really hard worker, really busy schedule. He wasn't going to go out and risk being, you know, groggy for on the construction sure. job. So Ben testified later that they had a very comfortable relationship. It was relatively conflict free. They're both very busy people, but whenever they had free time, they would always spend it together. They were inseparable. So Angela was used to his demanding schedule and completely understood when he said that he couldn't come out that night. She just was like, here's the invite. Can't go. Yeah, All right. No I'm going to have a good night. And he had no issue with her going out with she and her friends. They had a very like trusting situation. Okay. She asked him if there was any way he could get her into the private club that he had a membership to. And he claimed to have made the call, but he did not meet up with them at any point of that night. At 1.30 a.m. on October 13th, Angela knocked on his door. She said that she wanted to bug him before heading home for the night. He said the whole tone of the conversation was flirty and teasing and that they only talked for a few minutes. It was like nothing serious, no fighting. And then she left. Like she had just dropped off her friends. She was going back to her condo. She missed her boyfriend. She's 20 years, you know, it's yeah. like she just wanted to yeah. say goodnight to him, give him a kiss and totally. leave. So 15 minutes after leaving his place, he's kind of shocked because she calls him. And she had just seen him. So it was kind of bizarre. Sure. And he was like going back to bed. And it's had, almost 2 a.m. And he's an early morning. Yeah. And I can kind of see that he would be like a little bit annoyed. He's like, I can't go out with you because I need my sleep. And then you keep calling me. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the whole mood of that shifts when the first sentence out of her mouth was, talk to me. Oh. Benjamin recalled later that she seemed nervous and scattered and everything about the exchange just was not Angela. It felt, it felt weird. During the conversation, he could hear sounds coming from the background 
And at one point, Angela pulls like the phone away from her mouth and she says, oh, the bathroom's down the hall to someone in the room with her. Oh. She quickly explained to her boyfriend that there was a man in her apartment that wanted to use her bathroom and her phone. Oh my God. And this is at 1.30 a.m. It's after 1.30. It's after 1.30 because she stopped by and then by the time she's home. It's unclear whether or not she had let the strange man into her home or if he was already there when she arrived, but one could assume that she had let him in based off of the fact that it's just like, you're not popping in and there's this dude in there and then you're like, "Uh, hey babe, yeah, (laughs) there's a guy that wants to use my bathroom. Yeah. She asked her boyfriend, Ben, if he happened to know if there was a payphone at the nearby convenience store and he was just like, uh, like I, I think so, I don't know. She abruptly ends the conversation by saying, I'll call you right back. Hangs up. That's it. Oh, God. This is all bad. It's like real bad. She never calls him back. Nothing about this feels right to Ben. And he tries getting a hold of her, but she isn't picking up her phone. Benjamin got dressed and rushed to his truck. He had one of those early generation cell phones that he normally used for his construction jobs when he would be be on site. He was a manager. Mm Mm-hmm. During the eight-minute drive to her house, he called her again and again and again, but she would not answer her phone. Ben arrives at her apartment around 2 a.m., and he began to beat his fists against her front door. No response. He went around to her back door, but it was locked as well. Bangs on the door, no response. He's in a full-blown panic at this point. And he rushed the convenience store that she had quickly mentioned in the phone call earlier, figuring maybe had she been there? Did he use the phone? Have you seen my girlfriend? There was no luck. He saw that her car was in the apartment parking lot and you just knew that something was not right. There's no way there was no reason for her car to be there and her not to pick up. Ben called the police at 2.17 a.m. Police officers Ken Bajenska and Janice Crowther arrived around 20 minutes later and met Ben at her locked front door. When they knocked and didn't get a response, they used a key that they had gotten from the condo manager. The two officers entered the condo and they could sense instantly that something was not right. There was a single black pump on the floor and they found it strange that there wasn't a second one close by. Pump? Pump like um, like a heel? Oh my gosh, yeah. I was picturing a gas pump. I was like, whoa. <laughs> like a lot of weird things. Why did they think there would be two of those? Well, I wanted to say stiletto and I'm like, but there has to be a difference between a stiletto and a pump for them to specify that. And yeah. I don't exactly know what that is. I think it's like when there isn't any. Um, a pump is like high heels. Mm-hmm. And then and a stiletto is like like a really skinny, skinny high heel. Yeah. Okay. I'm not like a good, I'm not good at girl, clearly. <laughs> um, the officers went slowly from room to room but there wasn't any sign of Angela. There were no signs of forced entry. The front door was locked. The back door was deadbolted, and the sliding glass door was also locked and intact. The female police officer entered the second bedroom and found Angela lifeless on her bed. She was on her back, and her eyes were wide open. She was nude and covered in blood. Her legs were hanging off the bed. The other black pump was at the foot of the bed. The police officer that discovered her body stated that he recalls finding her body like it was last week, unlike all of the other murder cases that he has ever had to work. He said this crime looked like it was the result of evil preying on innocence. 
And the timing of this is so upsetting because I know she showed up at her boyfriend's door at 1.30, 15 minutes later. It's an eight-minute drive, and 15 minutes later, she calls him, and something's wrong, and then he is yeah. already there and calling the police by 2.17. It happened fast, and I think that that was one thing that alerted the officers was the fact that how could the front door be locked, the back door be locked, the glass door is intact, and there's ways of, I guess, closing the glass door getting it to lock on the inside or getting it off of the rail to break in but if you're in a hurry that take that's time consuming sure so nothing about this made any sense which is obviously why a lot of it points to a lot of things in the future yeah You'll, you'll see angela had several deep chest wounds 18 stab wounds in total eight of those stab wounds were to the heart and two to the sternum and this injury requires an extensive amount of aggression and force. Yeah, because your bones are all right there. Yeah, that's not an easy task. No. According to the case file, the deepest stab wound was seven inches deep and oh completely God. penetrated her heart. Officer Crowther stated that it appeared that her heart had been cut out. Oh my God. The forensic pathologist that testified said that the number of stab wounds suggested to him that this was overkill and a result of jealous frenzy. It looked as if a single-edged knife had caused the injury. Officers noted that a knife was missing from Angela's knife set, and even after extensive searches, they were never able to locate the murder weapon. Based off of that observation, you can assume that the killer showed up empty-handed and used one of Angela's knives to kill her. Whoever had done this was very methodical, and took the time to wipe down the surfaces he came in contact with, including Angela's phone. Once again, bizarre for the very short time frame in which he was there. Yeah. There was blood found in her bedroom as well as her bathroom. It looked as if someone had washed blood off of themselves, like in the bathtub shower area, because there was blood residue in the bathtub as well as on like the shower curtain and light switch. So this person had the time to converse with her, ask for her bathroom, ask for her phone, assault her, murder her, and then wipe prints off and take the time to wash himself off. Yeah. Insane. So there was absolutely no foreign hairs found on Angela's bedding, clothing, or body, which I immediately was like, is he bald? Did he shave his entire body? You hear people doing that if they're a serial rapist or killer. Yeah, yeah. Vaginal swabs revealed that she had had sex or was assaulted very close to the time of death. It was unclear if the sexual assault occurred before or after the time of death. All we know is that she was found in the position that she was assaulted in, like due to gravity and the semen that was found. Okay, okay. Technically, there was no way to determine whether or not it was consensual or non-consensual, and there weren't any injuries to her cervix or vaginal area. Everything about that is pretty atypical for most assaults. There were no signs of damage, no signs of bruising on her legs, vaginal area, face. And most of the time when there is an attack, there will be signs of defending yourself. But with that being said, there doesn't have to be injuries in order to establish that it was non-consensual. Right. That's like what our, my story last week where Denise Huskins exam showed that she had intercourse, but it wasn't. There weren't any signs on her person or in her vagina of any Mm -hmm. violence. Exactly. So you could claim that it was consensual, but... It's not the case. It was probably just a very methodical rapist, unfortunately. 
and this might be a gross detail, but an OBGYN OBGYN named Sarah Williams stated that she has done hundreds and hundreds of sexual assault examinations, and some were done as close as like one to three hours after the assault took place, yet she had never seen such a large number of intact sperm or congealed semen inside of a victim. So this means that the police discovered her right after this took place. Oh my gosh. Like just missed it. Whoa. How does that happen then if the doors are locked? That there's a reason this was a cold case for a very long time. (laughs) And I feel like I know what you're thinking because I was thinking the same thing. That's I wasn't sure if I should say like that's what I was thinking. I mean, I mean, to me, I'm like the boyfriend obviously did this, like the time in which it was found, the fact that there was, wasn't any, it it could have been a consensual interaction gone bad. Okay. There was jealousy going out. But, 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 but the whole like phone thing, like I assume that we can trace that he was calling her on that drive. Right. I don't know if even the technology would allow that any, like at that point in phone records. Yeah. You could. That's the thing is you can do those calls even if you're at the department. People have covered up murders by pretending to be somewhere. I guess that's true. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I know they certainly wouldn't have cell phone towers, so I'm the not infamous Scott to Peterson. I know, but I'm on I, my way to get milk. <laughs> I was just thinking that the landline, like they did, they did use phone records at that time, and mm-hmm. so they could have at least been able to track then his cell phone, not track his cell phone, but track his cell was making calls to her landline and that she had called him at that specific time and that maybe he was at his home but he was calling off of a cell phone it doesn't yeah that doesn't even come into play even when i was reading over the court documents okay logically speaking in my head has to be russell buchanan the man that she was with all night or the boyfriend during the examinations of the semen found at the scene Medical personnel concluded that Angie's attacker was a non-secretor. So these results cleared both of her boyfriend, Ben, and like an ex-boyfriend that she had dated before that. Okay. Russell Buchanan was another top suspect, largely due to the fact that he had been out with her that night. Yeah. And his blood type also happened to match the blood collected from her body. Doesn't mean it's an exact match, just the same blood type. Oh, I didn't even know that there was another person's blood. And found. Yeah, yeah, there was there was another person's blood found on her body. Okay. And the but also there was residue from um the it was on the counter in the kitchen and it looked like it was diluted as if he had washed his hands okay. and then touched the counter. So it was okay. mixed with water. Gotcha. Once they cleared Angela's boyfriend, they did everything in their power to get Russell to confess to the crime. Russell recalled detectives holding up the brutally graphic images of Angela's body and saying she dropped you off. You were mad because you wanted to have sex with her. You went down to her apartment. She let you in. You had sex with her. She started to scream. You stabbed her and you stabbed her and you stabbed her 18 times. And can you imagine that happening if you hadn't done that? You, yeah, I was going to say <laughs> that, absolute is, nightmare. that is so devastating. No matter how certain the detectives were, they didn't have any concrete evidence to prove that he had murdered her. So I think it's time that we introduce... The badass that is Sheila Wasaki. Okay. Okay. She sounds like yep. one. Sheila met Angela Samoda on their first day at SMU. And it wasn't exactly friendship love at first sight because 
Sheila could not stand the guy that Angela was dating. And there wasn't a lot of information about him, but he kind of just sounded like this threatening asshole. Ew. Really controlling. Yeah. Uh, They were new roommates, so I could see how they didn't like have any history there. So she meets this new girl. The boyfriend sucks. She's not going to pursue a friendship at the time. Yeah, just kind of avoids her. But once that relationship ended, they got incredibly close. They were polar opposites in most ways. Angela was academically as I say, academically, <laughs> Angela was academically inclined while Sheila had some learning disabilities. She was dyslexic okay, and she was just trying to make it through. So Angela would be pulling all nighters and Sheila was like, I am just trying to get a passing grade at this point. Yeah. Angela was the life of the party while Sheila was friendly, but she was very shy. She didn't want to put herself in the center of the room. Kind of like, like you and I. I I'm very shy that. and you're the center of attention. You're like sunshine. Everyone just comes to you. Oh my gosh. Don't make me cry. <laughs> I am very delicate. <laughs> one kind word. Get set it all off. But they found themselves bonding off of one similarity. And that was the fact that they both did not have fathers in their lives. Sheila said, Angie had a beautiful smile. The biggest I have ever seen. The type of smile that would light up her whole face. She was very vivacious and friendly and one of the few girls in the computer science and electrical engineering department. She was the triple threat. Great personality, real cute, and smart. Oh, that is you. No, that's you, Ashley. No, Stop that's it. No, you. that's you, girl. No, that's you. Knock it off. It can be both of it can, us. It's both of us, but we can keep saying it's you back okay. and forth until <laughs> our followers stop listening. <laughs> because we're also in the electrical engineering department, department. too. Very smart girls. <laughs> Uh, Angela eventually moved off of campus, so they were no longer roommates uh, by the time junior year rolled around, but they stayed very involved in each other's lives. They were still best friends. She had been invited to go out with three friends that night, but she did not go. On October 13th, 1984, she received a call from a friend of theirs named Barbara. She was hysterically crying, and Sheila instantly knew that something awful had happened. Barbara said that there had been some sort of accident, and... Sheila said that she doesn't know why, but she asked her, is Angie dead? Oh. It's just kind of, she just knew. Her life changed forever from that point. She couldn't believe that someone so smart, so beautiful, kind, and full of life could now be gone. Sheila went down to the police station to sit down and talk with the detectives. They showed her picture after picture, asking if she knew this person or the next person, questioning her about her daily routine and where she did her shopping every last detail to get an idea of who might have been following and watching her day to day. Sheila quickly picked up on the fact that the police believed it was Russell Buchanan that had murdered her. I think there were multiple reasons, but it mostly came down to the fact that he was with her that night and his blood type matched the blood found on her body. And he had obviously expressed an interest in her before and she had sort of rejected Rejected. it because she's got a boyfriend. So I understand. Sorry for interrupting. He was also older. He was like 23. And I know that that's like so young, but considering she was still in college and he was this graduated guy, I think they thought that there was something suspicious about like a man that had graduated hanging out with a girl that was still in college. I don't think that that's weird, but I'm noting it because they noted it in multiple sources. (laughs) At one point, Sheila said that she called the police to tell them that she had this bad feeling about Russell. She didn't know why but there was something about him that made her uncomfortable. So what did she do? She started conversing with him and she invited him to dinner. Oh boy. Sheila wanted to get a read on this man for herself, not just through police investigator, like the, the evidence. When she showed up at a restaurant called August Moon, 
She genuinely thought that she was about to eat dinner with a murderer. Her mom was livid. She was like screaming at her. She's like, how dare you do this? She, he killed your best friend. You're putting yourself in harm's way. What are you thinking? But that was just like the type of girl that Sheila was. The police thought that he had done it. Therefore, she thought he did it. Everything Russell told her at dinner, he had told to the detectives. His story remained consistent and it never changed. After that dinner and taking the lie detector test, he lawyered up. Oh. Which is normal, but his lawyer was a very well-known attorney named Richard Hayes, nicknamed Racehorse Haynes. Oh. And I'm like, did you give yourself that or did someone else (laughs) give you that? And I guess the rumor was, if you hire this guy, you're guilty. Oh, that's the stigma with someone? I guess so. It's kind of like he's like this big guy and you're only going to hire this big guy if you know it's going to be a tough case. But it's a murder case and people are on you. So, I mean, I I didn't read into this, but they did. Okay. The consensus was Russell's guilty, even though there wasn't any physical evidence that suggested he was at the scene of the crime. So without any concrete evidence, none of the suspects could be charged and the case went cold until 2006. What? Sheila could not. That let- happened in 1984 mm-hmm. and then it was solved in 2006. Yeah, girl. Buckle oh, up. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> Sheila, the badass, could not let this go. The death of her best friend was the worst thing that had ever happened to her and it traumatized her to her core. She would regularly meet up with the lead detective at bars to talk about the case. They got so close during this time that she invited him to her wedding in 1988. Wow. So all during... I All mean, this go, time, going, she kept in contact with the lead detective. But going back to 1984, like mm-hmm. Russell lawyered up and then just the police didn't have enough to charge him or anything. So it just... There's nothing they could do about the it. The whole thing just went cold. Just dropped. Okay. Sheila didn't drop it though. Well, yeah. One day in 2004, 20 years after her best friend's murder, she suddenly saw Angela appear while doing her Bible study. She couldn't believe her eyes. Right in front of her was her sweet best friend with her big, beautiful smile. Sheila said that she never believed in ghosts, but she knew that this was a sign. At that very moment, she picked up the phone and called the Dallas Police Department. She left a message with the homicide division, but she never heard back. She called the police department approximately 700 times without any of her phone calls being returned. Oh my God, this makes me emotional. (laughs) So... She's like obviously persistent, but she couldn't believe that she was being blown off by the man that she had worked with so closely over the years that she literally invited him to her wedding. Yeah. Yet he couldn't bother picking up the phone. Yeah. What is, I don't understand that. It makes no sense. And like on top of that, like the most heartbreaking aspect of it all was that it had been 20 years and no one but her had ever called. So she couldn't fathom how a woman could be killed so violently and no one was desperate to find out who who did this and why would they ever do this yeah and She's, clearly whoever has done it even if you believe it's russell or the boyfriend or any or just a third person they're still out there and someone that does something like this like it's hard to believe that they wouldn't be repeating this oh there's no chance that didn't seem like the first time or the last sheila could not move on with her life and she knew that she had to do something about it she decided she was going to become a private investigator Oh, I know, I know. I got, when I read that, I was like swish of chills. (laughs) When she passed her private investigator exam, she just figured that the police would be more willing to sit down and talk about the case with her. But she was wrong. They couldn't care less. They were also so, they were so sick and tired of this woman and her inability to drop it. But they decided 
were opening the friggin' case. Wow. So because of Sheila and her love and dedication to her best friend, a 20-year-old cold case was reopened. Wow, that's am- that is so uh, something I would do if 100%. I if I can't rely on you to do it. And I'm like, well, I'm going to just do it myself then. I'm just going to be certified oh, yeah. and I will do this myself. You have to be your own advocate. A female detective <laughs> and change your profession to do so. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> it was funny because when I was sitting on the couch, I yeah, I think it was like yesterday or a couple days ago. I was like, Ashley, just so you know, I would do this for you and you would do this for me. <laughs> I know. And I didn't even know what you were referencing. <laughs> well, this is it, honey. Yeah. <laughs> a female detective named Linda Crum was assigned to the case. And she worked tirelessly to learn the ins and outs. One day, she called Sheila and stated that she knew Russell Buchanan was the number one suspect. And she had the physical evidence to prove it. She said that not only did she have semen to test, they had Angela's fingernails. So this was massive. They have two different sources to be able to test now. Oddly enough, the technique of DNA testing to determine a fingerprint was actually discovered the year of Angela's murder but it didn't enter the legal system until three years later in 1987. Gotcha. So even though it was beginning, it, even so even it was in the beginning stages, it was being used. DNA testing had obviously made leaps and bounds since then. Oh yeah, drastically. <laughs> the police department put in a request to test the results, but unfortunately this stuff takes a ton of time. It's not a quick process by any means. And like I was naive and thought it was like getting your blood drawn and then, you know, 72 hours later you get your right. results. Yeah. It's not like that. Yeah. The following year, in 2009, Sheila received a call that would once again change her life. Linda Crum was on the other end, and she said, we got him. Sheila expected Russell Buchanan to be the next thing out of her mouth. Yeah. But she was mistaken. Oh. The name that came out of her mouth was one that she had never heard of in her life. At the time of Angela's murder, this piece of shit had been on parole while serving a 25-year sentence for aggravated sexual assault and kidnapping. Ugh. On parole. As if we needed any more reasons to conclude this man is scum on earth. He was currently serving a life sentence for another crime. Wait, what? Yeah, so he, so he's... Uh, back when he had assaulted Angela, he had been convicted. He had pleaded guilty for kidnapping and assaulting a woman was on parole, assaulted and murdered Angela, got away with it, had done the same thing to somebody else, and was currently serving a life sentence. Oh, I thought you meant when he killed Angela, he mm-hmm. was serving a life sentence simultaneously. Like, and how? I was like, how did he get out? <laughs> how? And how? <laughs> Donald Bess was born on September 1st, 1948 in Jefferson County, Arkansas. He had been convicted of two rape cases prior to Angela's case, and when he stood trial, several women, including his ex-wife, accused him of sexually assaulting them. The jurors heard from a woman that he had pleaded guilty of raping seven years before killing Angela, and her name was Elizabeth Kegg. And she said that after Bess abducted her off of a street in Houston, he told her, you're a victim of my aggression. Oh. He proceeded to rape her at knife point. He had been sentenced to 25 years in prison for that crime, but he was paroled. Months later, he murders Angela. It's like, I don't understand how a man like that ever gets allowed back on the street and think about the other. I mean, how many things has this man gotten away with? If he got away with that, there has to be other ones that are connected to to him. Yeah. With the DNA evidence and multiple women testifying with similar stories, 
Donald Best didn't stand a chance. It took the jury less than an hour before finding him guilty of the sexual assault and murder of Angela Samota. He received a death sentence, and he remains on death row to this day. He's still alive? He's still kicking. After Donald Best was found guilty, Sheila knew that she needed to reach out to Russell Buchanan. She had spent the two decades hating this man because she thought that he killed her best friend, yet he went on to live this full life. Yeah. And like I kept thinking, like, the question is how full? You know, he had been a part of this later, and then all of these people are thinking that he's done something horrific. And knowing that you're innocent would be, I that is my actual worst nightmare. Going to jail for the crime that you didn't commit is my worst nightmare. But also the people looking at you as you walk down the street and then how do you have a family and things like that when people it's terrible it's awful it's all up for debate and yeah. you can't live a normal life so in hindsight she was able to see that she was truly just suspicious of everyone at that point and it never ever had anything to do with russell personally she didn't actually know the guy very well but she was influenced by the police saying we know this is the guy and she followed along with that she's young why wouldn't she you know and we all just You know, for better or worse, we always assume that the police know something we don't. They know more. They're the professionals. They do this. It's it's natural to think that. That they're right. They know what they're doing. It's their job. Yeah. So they ended up visiting Angela's gravesite together, and she asked him for his forgiveness. He told Sheila what a relief it was to no longer carry the burden of other suspicions. It was like a massive weight off of his shoulders. Yeah. Sheila initially had planned on retiring from being a private investigator after she solved Angela's case once and for all, but she decided to wait a bit after, after all of these people reached out to her for help. Like she received countless letters explaining their stories and their cold case stories. And they're like, please help us. And she just knew, she knew she wanted to bring justice for her best friend. And in the meantime, she ended up finding her calling. Yeah. That's amazing. It's amazing. And that is the 20-year-old cold case that was solved due to the persistence of a best friend's love. And, like, this is just one of many cold cases that have been solved, like, decades later due to DNA testing. Yeah. I went down, like, this rabbit hole one day with the GED Match, which is, like, that public website that uses DNA and genealogy to solve cold cases. Mm. And it's basically one massive database used to compare data file data. data <laughs> is, that, is it data or is it data? That's like what mean I don't know. where you read it differently yeah. in your head. Yeah. I say data files um, from different testing companies. It's just phenomenal. I think I, I read somewhere that there has now been 59 cold cases that have been solved. Like as of 2019, there's been 59 cold cases and that's a very short amount of time yeah. considering. Yeah. And like the most infamous, obviously, is the Golden State Killer. Yeah. Uh, that's the prime example yeah. um, where like law enforcement uploaded the DNA profile to GED Match. And then boom, there's Joseph D'Angelo. And decades later, he was arrested in 2018. Mm-hmm. So it's incredible. Keep it up. Amazing work, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> We're big fans, yeah, everybody. Big, <laughs> big fans of DNA testing and genealogy yeah. and uh, GED Match. Yeah. So yeah, that is um, that's my that's my story of the week. Great job, thanks, girl. It just goes to show that true friendship doesn't fade away even after your friend's gone. No, I know it's amazing, and they had only been in each other's lives for two years, but clearly Angela was like the type of woman that leaves a lasting, a lasting impression. Impression? (laughs) My gosh, I want to get it together. Impression is what I meant to say. Well, my biggest takeaway was being your own advocate. When you know, 
murders are happening, assaults are happening constantly. And unfortunately, even though this person means literally everything to you. Oh, and there's a bad. All right. That's oh, a God. bad, bad toot. <laughs> Not so, from Ashley, from no, Khaleesi, her dog. This is why Khaleesi isn't allowed in here when we record. She's snoozing and farting. Ugh. That is like uh, while ultimate you're relaxation. Beautiful. I know. And then the whole room. Oh my God. I know. No smell, ventilation. Smells so bad in here now. Oh, sorry. Sweet girl. Sweet, sorry. Sweet finish girl. this beautiful thing you were saying. Oh, that, you know, just because the person that had been assaulted or murdered, taken from you, means everything to you. Unfortunately, they're just a name. They're just a face among many. Yeah. And law enforcement they're often just doing the best that they can they're overwhelmed I mean, yeah as long as there's going to be awful people doing awful things that's just the way this is going to go you're just automatically outnumbered and you cannot assume that people are taking the case as seriously as you are so sheila's a prime example of someone that called 700 times and yeah. did not give up mm-hmm. and that is something that i personally took away from this crime if it matters you never ever give up on it yeah that was my takeaway too mm-hmm just need to be persistent always be your own advocate mm-hmm. or your loved one's advocate yeah and and also this donald best guy could have easily been still on the streets committing more crimes it just mm-hmm. so happened that he was serving another life sentence yeah for hurting somebody else yeah and like that's i mean my other takeaway is how shitty it's so terrible the legal system can be the fact that a man like that i mean i think if i i know that people make mistakes and people can change but i think if there's certain qualities that are exhibited such as if you're committing violent crimes you don't don't change i don't think that you are i mean maybe this is like controversial i guess it depends but no i think if you commit a violent crime Mm -hmm. you have given up your right of rehabilitation or given being allowed to come back into society because yeah. you've already proven that you hurt people. I think that there's certain crimes and like, once again, I might get some flack for this, but I think there's certain crimes that people can grow from and are a little bit more forgivable when it comes yeah. to like burglary uh-huh. or even drug charges. Yeah. You know, that is something that people can, you learn from your mistakes. But I, I totally think agree. anytime there's a violent Harm. assault, rape, um, you know, even there's certain murder things in, in terms of like just even self-defense or heat of you know moment sure. of passion things sure. like that that are excusable but this is clearly something where he sought out women mm-hmm. by themselves vulnerable and took something from them and then eventually took their lives from them yeah and that is unacceptable and he should have never been able to have access to angela so no. that is my other takeaway well thank you for telling that story you did a really good job thanks ashley you appreciate gave me, you give me chills the whole time you got the chilies yeah even in this 100 degree room i did yeah <laughs> that says a lot i'm amazing there's <laughs> <laughs> a lot about your story well thanks ashley okay well, love, you. love you bye, bye. thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode please rate review and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram at crimebarpodcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina. We'll see you next week.